this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make as an alternative to putting a chip in our heads to dull the pain of existence. (laughs) I am Spencer Kornhaber, a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I'm joined today by two other staff writers on our culture team, Sophie Gilbert. Yep, you can call me Sophie G. Sophie G, as yes, we're, we're, okay, we'll forgo last names here, Sophie G and David S., uh, hello. Wait, what are they, is there some positive greeting? They don't have a positive greeting that they give, right? Like, what's for dinner, kids, or whatever? Yeah, 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 what's for dinner, kids? <laughs> there you go. All right, we are already well within a web of inside references to today's topic, the Apple TV Plus show Severance, uh, a dystopian-y, sci-fi-y, psychological thriller that has become the maybe most acclaimed show of the year. What do you think, Sophie, uh, as our TV critic? Is it the TV show of the year? Um, Yes, I would say it is the one that has gathered the most hype over the course of its run, or certainly the one that I've seen people talking about more than anything else, which, you know, in in part could be, I think, because of just the strangeness of the show. But but it also, I think, has, has gathered a lot of fans for justifiable reasons. Yeah, yeah, the finale was last month. But it feels like people are still catching up on the show and still becoming obsessed and talking about it. So we're going to try to sort through why it's become this obsession and what it says about workplace culture today. So if you do want to like explain what the heck is going on with the show, like what is it? I wish I could. Um, yes, <laughs> I will. I will try. Um, it is a show largely written by Dan Erickson, who is a first-time screenwriter, directed by Ben Stiller, the comedian, writer, director. It is a show that that begins in its first scene with a woman passed out on a conference table in this very like meticulously staged gorgeous shot the carpet and her dress and everything is this like very clashing sense of green and she i think is is representing us the viewers we have no idea what's going on and it turns out that she has undergone her name is helia she has undergone a, a process called severance i have of my own free accord elected to undergo the procedure colloquially known as severance i give consent for my perceptual chronologies to be surgically split separating my memories between my work life and my personal life. Oh, 
protagonist is Mark, played by Adam Scott, who works for a very mysterious company called Lumen Industries, which has implanted a chip in his brain with his permission that divides his memory and perception in two. Uh, every time he steps into the elevator down to the uh, quote-unquote severed floor of Lumen, it triggers the chip and he is, I think, geospatially <laughs> separated <laughs> into his work self, uh, who knows nothing about his home self. Work Mark has no idea what his life is like outside the office. Outside Mark doesn't know what work mark does and honestly like work mark doesn't seem to know what work mark does either this is a very, mm -hmm. whatever is happening at lumen there are bottle fed goats there are lots and lots and lots and lots of corridors there is a cult of personality run around the company's founders the egan family there's a lot going on uh and so while it may seem that mark has achieved the goal of work-life balance what he's actually done as we see in the show is essentially enslaved a portion of himself who never gets to leave the office i acknowledge that henceforth my access to my memories will be spatially dictated I will be unable to access outside recollections whilst on Lumen's severed basement floor, nor retain work memories upon my ascent. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the opposite of what I wrote in my review. It's kind of the opposite of what we've all gone through during, well, what lots of us have gone through during the pandemic, which is like kind of bleeding into the home life where everything, every room is suddenly, you're, yeah. you're, you know, you're, you're working in bed, you're working on the couch, you're working in the spare room, you're working in the bathroom, you're working everywhere. Um, it's kind of the opposite of that. Like uh, you only work inside Lumen Industries severed floor. Yeah, the, it's like if you turn, whenever you turned on Zoom, you suddenly forgot right. what was happening in the kitchen or something. Right. Um, one thing I think that the show has really... That really sets it apart as a kind of puzzle box, slightly strange mystery show as its tone. It's It really strikes this sort of excellent balance between weird, compelling drama and very absurd comedy. <laughs> the visuals of it are so sinister, like the austerity of Lumen, the 70s vibe, the retro tech, um, the absolutely terrifying non-severed office employees um, and the bosses. I think there's Mrs. Cobell, played by Patricia Arquette, and <laughs> Mr. Milchick, the supervisor <laughs> on the severed floor who's played by Tramel Tillman in a performance that similarly is just perfectly pitched between yep. comic and horrifying. Hello, refiners. Hi, Mr. Milchuk. Helly, I'm a gog at how well I can tell you're already fitting in. Well, David, do you like Severance? Yes, I love the show deeply. And I can be a bit of a grump about television these days. I think Netflix ruined television forever and it's all really bad now. And, and sometimes I annoy people at bars with this opinion. <laughs> and then once in a while, a show will come along that reminds me of the halcyon days of the early 2000s when, you know, whatever, TV was good in my, you know, stupid opinion. And this show just reminds me of just the joyful discovery of like some you know, sci-fi serial like Lost where we were all in it together. We we're all like, look, I don't know if this thing's going to figure everything out at the end. Like, I don't know if all these mysteries are going to make sense. Like, but just the, the, the act of seeing all this creativity on screen and then chatting about it with each other and thinking about like, oh, what could it mean? And plus, as Sophie's saying, all the clever aesthetics of it and the way it's sort of commenting on office life and the office comedy and like you know sort of tv formulas that we know 
it, it, it's just all so exciting. It's it's like the the TV show that's excited me the most in recent memory. I can't think of another like th- that feeling where you're like, oh, we get to watch a severance, you know, like, like, you know, like that, that really rare. I, I don't know. So if you, if you agree, but it's like rare these days that you're, you're like, oh, it's whatever day it is. It's Tuesday time for a severance. Like we, we get to see another one. Like I, I just never have that feeling anymore. Yeah. I think the shows that I look forward to most like that are usually sort of fairly light and escapist. Right. Like the Gilded Age, for example, I'd be like, ah, the Gilded Age. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I get to put my head Who in a blender, like stupidest show on TV. Yes, yes. going to snub this week. No, no, no. I agree. This is like very, very, very different. Um, but it does keep you paying attention in all kinds of really mm. uh, provocative ways. Right. Like, what was that just there? Wait a second. You know, a lot yeah. of that kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because it reminds you of, of so many things. Like, it, obviously watching it, you know, it has like Charlie Kaufman style pieces of it. And it, mm. you know, it reminded me a lot of Black Mirror. And there have been a lot of shows recently that are thinking about like free will and consciousness. There was Devs on FX and Hulu, Alex Garland's very bleak show about uh, data programmers. Sure. About big tech gone awry or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever Devs was about. <laughs> There's Westworld and the idea mm. that actually, yeah. although the robots were not in charge of their own destiny, I think in the last season was sort of playing with the idea that human beings aren't either. The Black Mirror pieces of it really fascinate me. And then it, it turned out that um, Dan Erickson was actually thinking about White Christmas in part when he was thinking about the mm-hmm. show and just the idea that our consciousness can be imprisoned by ourselves so i i I don't know the mood board of things that that the creators were inspired by when they were making the show i think there's like a five minute long sizzler commercial that we've all now watched because it was pretty good 1991 it's like a scientology presentation sizzler brings the choices that you've been looking for giving you the right to choose we're offering much more. It's <laughs> so good. We are revolutionizing the idea of dinner. You can eat at the buffet or you can sit at a table. And that is choice and choice is America, my friend. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a really it's a really great piece. Of <laughs> yeah. Very strange 1990s. Corporate uh, propaganda. Corporate propaganda, exactly. Yeah, it's like the ur text for too many cooks and all the adults <laughs> in um, post-ironic entertainments. Hey, we just, we've been so worried about free will all this time and... And Sizzler was right there. Spencer, did you like the show? Um, I think you are both chipped. I think this show is not that great. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Are you serious? You're crazy. Yeah. I mean, I hear everything you're saying. Love the melange of influences. Think it's working with such wonderful, weighty, media ideas. But the pacing is excruciating. Ben Stiller has never met a hallway or car that he does not want to depict every moment of someone moving through it or exiting (laughs) that car. I think it's like such a wonderful concept, uh, Severance. And I wish that it kind of explored that idea a little more straightforwardly instead of making it just a pretext for another show about an evil corporation with a shadowy conspiracy that's trying to re-engineer the human experience. But um, I'm glad that you both like it. That's okay. I hear you. I acknowledge the you that you are. Um, I, I do, I will say, <laughs> I, I do think that the show, at, at very much in the first few episodes, is, is kind of sluggish in, in pacing. Mm-hmm. And I definitely um, agree with you about how the shots of the 
corridor walking, <laughs> they start to feel, uh, especially because there's not much dialogue happening. I think it's just like Adam Scott walking down the hallway yeah. for like two minutes. But there's a lot of acting happening in that time. And and I, I think the thing that set it apart for me from other shows with shadowy nefarious corporations was its sense of humor, which is just so absurd and wacky. And there's just, just the quest, like, there's so much going on. Like, Egan is such a strange place. What is up with the goats? What is up with the, I mean, well, I don't want to spoil this too much, but there is a work gathering where one of the options on the playlist is defiant jazz there's a Mm -hmm. melon party everything is just done with such pitch perfect seriousness and yet it is on its face completely absurd it has made me completely rethink like every kind of professional (laughs) work event that i've ever been to if we hit our numbers by quarter's end one of us gets named refiner of the quarter and that shit gets you a waffle party I'm sorry, a waffle party? I mean, it's making humor out of, yeah, like internal propaganda and sort of like the false bonhomie that you kind of have to have at work. Uh, Like, you know, the feeling of when your boss tells you we're all a family when really they're exploiting you. Um, Right. But that's the territory of like, you know, office space, the office, many, 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 many workplace comedies. And a lot of that felt sort of rehashed to me. No? My, that what you're describing was my fear like the opening episode where he's walking through the hallways and my wife was like is this going to be one of those shows that every episode's a fucking hour and nothing happens and you know you know which is basically like to me all prestige tv now right like all prestige to me tv to me like by episode nine they're like and now the premise is established. And you're like, hey, yes. what the hell? Why is this taking so long? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and like, and then the finale, they're like, we'll see you next year. Netflix is like, you're canceled. But anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, and then like, so I, what I think I, what I thought this show was going to much more slowly peel back the nightmare because, you know, have the early episodes be like, yes, there's this strange thing where we're not, you know, connected to our outside selves, but we're doing our work and it's an office comedy. And then almost immediately it's like, no, if this existed, these people would live in a nightmare from which there is no escape. And so how would people deal with that becomes the immediate plot line in several, like, I feel like by like episode two or three, like, you know, John Turturro's character is the the happy camper who's you know trying to absorb all of the weird corporate propaganda right um mm-hmm. hallie is the you know the uh, rebel who is doing everything she can to basically like wage war on her own body to try and shock herself out of the job and you know zach cherry is like such a good version of the comic character from like an office spit like the goof off right except yeah. like it's it's like he's trying to like you know solve a video game to which like he, that he can't win. I like mm-hmm. there's something just sort of like dire and incredibly funny but incredibly bleak about that. The erasers are mostly decorative since we don't have pencils. Finger trap is fun as long as you know how to use it safely, but it's really more about what they represent, how far you got in the file. So yes, Mark works with three other severed co-workers, Dylan G played by the fan favorite Zach Cherry. There is right. Irving B, played by John Turturro. Um, just a really striking performance. We should hide inspirational handbook quotes around the office for her to stumble upon. She just needs to start earning perks, dude. I'd end my life if I didn't have any finger traps yet. I was just sort of immediately like thrilled that the show was about how how insane a sci-fi premise this is versus being like a light 
satire of office culture. It is like a nightmarish satire of office Uh culture. Like it just escalated far faster than I thought it would. I mean, I hear that. And I I think that you isolating the actual four principles is like the best argument for the show and the way that they kind of like fit into these different archetypes of people you've seen in workplace shows before. Maybe we should talk about them. Like, like Helly is waging war on her own body. Am I trapped here? In what way? Like, if it turns out I hate this and I want to quit, is that an option? If you're really unhappy, you can submit a resignation request with your outside self for review. And good luck getting that approved. Yeah, they do tend to be rejected. She comes in as, as the newbie and has the most rational, sympathetic reaction, which is, what the hell? This is... Right. Awful. Get insane. me out of why here. Would I, why would I do Please. this? And the rest what? of them were like, you don't understand. Yeah, sure. The job makes no sense. And you don't know what you're doing. And you're just looking at a computer and having weird emotions that you get, you know, help guide you through the day. But, you know, you'll get used to it. And she's like, I'm not going to get used to this. Are you out of your mind? Let me out at once. And if not, I'm going to kill myself. Like, well, and like, I, I feel like there's a version of the show where that happens in episode 10. And, you know, and I was happy that was not the case. Well, the contrast between Helly and Marcus is pretty perfect, right? Because we don't see anything of Helly's seven her outside her outies life we haven't even mentioned that the inside selves are called innies and that outside uh, are called yeah. outies belly button yuck. television uh yeah well, but it's a good yuck i understand that. um but yeah we don't see any of heli's outie life until the finale but we see all of mark's we see his kind of despair after his wife's death and his grief and how his right. outie self is profoundly miserable and then in the thing that i find so intriguing in the first episode is you see him in the elevator and you hear the like bloop the kind of fluttery sound and the elevator ping and you see his eyes go bloop, bloop, and he is <laughs> suddenly any mark and he's free you know he's like inside the office he's free from this like awful burden of sadness and <laughs> drinking wine in front of the tv until you know 7 a.m it's it's just like a it, it feel they are they work so well as characters together. I think because they really are coming from opposite perspectives. Like for one, this this is an absolute torture, and for the other, it's an escape. Um, and then you kind of know you know that they're going to change each other by the finale and yeah, motivate each other. What do you think of the portrayal of the Audi world? Yeah, I feel like you detect a lot of creep from Lumon in the outer world that is yeah. sort of you know unspoken, like these weird sort of prefab villages that they all live in and the houses all kind of looking the same and all that right yeah the outie world feels recognizably like our own the only like slightly strange element of it is the amazing work of (laughs) self-help genius that uh, mark's (laughs) brother-in-law his brother-in-law rickon is writing this amazing work of self-help called the we we are which you know is this (laughs) patently absurd (laughs) completely nonsensical tone but then for some reason, somehow it, it gets into the lumen severed floor and is discovered by the workers who, not having any concept of anything other than their office, hail it as a work of great genius and liberation. Yeah, I love that. That right, it becomes like the communist manifesto to them. This, like, yeah. you know, D-list self-help book. What separates man from machine is that machines cannot think for themselves. Also, they are made of metal. Whereas man is made of skin. If you are a soldier. I, uh, yeah, I think that is the funniest part. The book itself is just the most 
drivel of self-help that that you could ever imagine it's like bullies are bull and lies or whatever is that that something yeah yeah false etymologies for words all the time a good person will follow the rules a great person will follow himself bullies are nothing but bull and lies at the center of industry is dust what i love about rickon's book is that it is both the dumbest thing that you've ever read, but it also is like honestly radical and life-changing and helpful to these people that are trapped in Lumen who are essentially one-year-old children and have never been exposed to any sort of philosophy about the world other than their corporate propaganda. And I guess it makes me a little more sympathetic to the self-help consumers of the world who I have never made fun of, but I imagine that other people have. No, I love it so much. I love that there's like these clean slate babies <laughs> and he's just don't know anything apart from the severance world. Like they don't, what do they talk about? The water cooler, nothing. They don't know TV. They don't watch anything. They don't read books apart from the we, we are. It's, it's, it's just such a, it's such a wonderful, weird setup. The thing I liked about the weirdness of severance. Um, there are a lot of shows that you watch where you know that you're just never going to get answers. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Twin Peaks, you're never going to really understand what's what's going on there. At The Leftovers, you know that you're never really going to find out why 3% of the world's population suddenly disappeared and, and never came back. I mean, there are theories and there are, you know, like hints of things that may or may not have happened, but basically it's you have to let the mystery be. And with severance, I really do feel like there are answers and you get enough yes. of them throughout the course of season one that you can kind of have faith that one day you will find out <laughs> what Egan is, what it's doing. But isn't this a trap that we've fallen into before? No, like, I don't. You know that, I like, what, like these shows never pay off well. And, and it, you know, it's just, it, it gives me a lot of Westworld where this technology, it seems like it's a limited application at first and it's a cute little innovation. But then there's like these overlords who are thinking about how they're going to change everyone on earth with this technology and and you know really re-engineer what it means to be a human and um and also there's an apocalyptic backdrop and also uh there's counter movements and rebellions within it and it's just gonna, it's just going to spiral out and i mean i hope that they pull it off but but it's just I, we've seen so many times before the way that this is just not a sustainable mode of storytelling and and something I, like the lost or left of like something like lost or the leftovers um, you know, does frustrate people, but I think is a much more kind of powerful form of playing with these kind of surreal seeming dystopian ideas. Whereas like, no, they're, they're you are not going to get every answer. Um, but you have to like, so you have to enjoy the characters and you have to enjoy the theme and you have to enjoy the setting. And you can't just be hitting next episode and hoping to like have all your questions answered because that will ultimately be unfulfilling. But so you are des- you're describing the experience of watching Lost, though, for a lot of people. As right, much right, as right. I would totally defend Lost, people absolutely were hitting next episode hoping to get their questions answered. Um, I mean, the thing with so many of those, especially the Lindelof shows, which you're, you know, Lost and the Leftovers both mm-hmm. are, is like, it, you know, there's sort of like, there's an element of kind of spiritualism and kind of a like, look at the end of the day, we don't know to his storytelling like at the end of the day there are things that we don't understand about like you know life and creation or what you know like god or, you know that he bakes into his storytelling and i think that would always end up frustrating people not me 
I would end up happy as a no. clam. But some people would <laughs> be like, well, wait a second. It can't just be like there was magic, you know? And it's like, well, you know, kind of. Um, but I, I, I'll, I'll take Dan Erickson at his word when he says, like, I've got an ending for this thing. Like, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. think this is the kind of... The problem with Lost was it's like we landed on an island and there's everything on it. So it became this very difficult task of like, well, how on earth do you tie the polar bear to the Egyptian statue? Like, I don't, you know, like, you know, like, it's like, you've just thrown everything into the blender. How could you possibly create a grand unified theory here? And whereas Severance, it's like, there's a company, they're up to no good. Now we know a little of what they're up to and we'll learn more. But like, it it does feel a little more focused to me. Uh, than than lot. I mean, the thing with Westworld, which you're bringing up, like Westworld was an adaptation of a movie that had an ending, and then the end of Westworld season one, we had d- now done the movie, and they were like, "All right, more." And it's like, mm, I don't, you know, this thing was not built to have more. Like this thing was built to be, what if you were in a robot Westworld and like the robots ran amok? That would be bad. But like then season two of West, season two of Westworld is like, but what what actually drives consciousness? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, what this is season two? Like you know. But Severance is going to have to like answer a question like that, right? Like that that you and it seems to be dancing around a lot of the sort of existential, you know, mysteries that it raises about like who are you really? Like if you have all your memories removed, like what's your personality? And I don't know what do we really want out of work and all that. And and so far, it's just kind of like leading us along. I don't know, Sophie, you kind of point of this in your review like it's batting at these ideas but does it have a point of view i i I don't think it needs to necessarily i think it's like it's enough Mm -hmm. for us to think about these things so i'll never leave here you'll leave at five but it won't feel like it not to this version of you anyway i have no choice well every time you find yourself here it's because you chose to come back i think it's really fascinating that this show which says so many things about late capitalism and our experience of work as mandated by large corporations with boards that tend not to see humans necessarily as individuals with souls and complex personal lives and feelings and interiority but less as you know kind of a a vast amorphous pool of workers to be drawn from as need be like it's really fascinating to me that this (laughs) this show is airing on apple um, like there are it things is, that seem... it's, this show is really making fun of Apple. Like it, 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 it yeah. is funny like, that they let it through. There's a there's a cult of personality in a huge corporation built around a mysterious founder. <laughs> right. I mean, where everything's all white and retro. Yeah. Like, yeah. It feels. I mean, it, there are things that feel directly drawn from real things that Amazon has done to its employees. Like, I think offering right. them when they're very stressed or burned out, offering them like ten minute uh, wellness, like check ins or guided meditations. You know, like the break room, which is so brilliant because of the the double entendre of the word break. Like, yes, the break room, but also it is where we will psychologically break our employees until they apologize. Like it, it's so subversive in such an intriguing way, and it's it's definitely you don't expect to find something like this necessarily on Apple TV streaming platform. Yeah, what's um, how how is Apple doing in the streaming race? Is this is this TV show like well, uh, it, it, it pulling ahead or something? Well, I think and maybe I myself am guilty of this. I don't know if other people did it quite as much. I can't remember, but when Apple launched. Um, there was such a sense of like, uh, who needs this? Like, we don't need another streaming platform. 
Um, like they even make jokes about it in season two of the morning show where I think the fictional network there is like launching a streaming platform and everyone's like, no, we don't want another one. No one wants this. This is too much TV. What? And you know, when Apple launched, it didn't have the back catalog that um, that Netflix had or HBO had or, you know, and there was no, there was no pre-existing like Apple IP. There was, there was nothing there. So it, the shows that it launched with were the shows that you got when you signed up for Apple TV. And, and, and I think in that initial lineup of, of product, C. there was, there was not a ton. Yeah. There was like, my C, dad watches the, C. The blind Does Jason he? Momoa. It is for dads for sure. I sure. mean, we've talked about the insanity that is Steve Knight of Peaky Blinders and Spencer before on the podcast. Right, that's right. The that's man right. has never met a genre he won't touch. Um, there, there was the morning show, which I, I really, I think, got a lot of flack for how much money it purportedly cost for its enormous stars. And, and I think at this point has just descended into high camp masterpiece. Um, there was Dickinson, which was the lowest profile yeah. of them all, and I think turned out to be cult favorite. Um, yeah, kind of the- quite quite well liked, right? I, I feel like people are always telling me um, For All Mankind got really good. That's a show I keep yeah. meaning to get to. I couldn't get past season one of that, honestly. I respect people who could. Um, but, you know, for, for the first flush of shows that it came out with, they were, they were not super compelling. But then came Ted Lasso, which I think now is everyone's and their dads and their moms and their sister-in-law's favorite comedy. Um, and then slowly, like the shows that have been coming out, the Slow Horses, which is the Mick Heron, um spy adaptation with Gary Oldman. There's, there's all these actually really, really well-crafted shows. And it does make the case for Apple as actually one of the most successful, if you're into quality television, one of the most successful streaming networks out there right now. I don't know whether what that says for it, in terms of its success financially, but um, David, maybe you know more about that than I do. So when Apple TV Plus sort of started to get off the ground, they they brought in Richard Plepler, who uh, worked at HBO for 27 years, as sort of one of the big architects of what we think of as HBO's, you know, golden era, right in the late 90s through to the 2010s, uh, where they really emphasized a new HBO show being an event, right? Like they didn't really flood the zone. HBO would usually just have a new episode of something on Sundays, but it was real water cooler stuff. Everyone, you know, should be discussing it the next day. The Sopranos, Game of Thrones, True Blood, Boardwalk Empire, The Newsroom, Veep, Big Little Lies, True Detective, you know, a zillion, like all all this kind of stuff. And he moved on from HBO when it got sucked into the corporate structure of AT&T and they wanted you know to do lots more right hbo max we're gonna have lots we're gonna try and imitate netflix and i feel like apple tv is now trying to slide into that space of like an apple show is an event like an apple show Mm. is this very glossy impressive star-laden product that uh is going to come out weekly and is going to be much discussed now has that worked yet i think in bits and pieces right sophie like the morning show you know, it was so star-laden that it, it definitely had some moments where people were kind of like, are you guys watching this? Like, you know, this thing's crazy. Yeah, and then I'm obviously Ted Lasso. The no. I feel like also the second season people sort of fell off. Uh, but and then Ted Lasso and Mythic Quest were these sort of surprise, like small-scale comedies that became like buzzier, you know, and things like that. Whereas then they also had things like Foundation, which have you all watched Foundation? Like, no. Must have cost a 
billion dollars you're watching. <laughs> and you're just like, this thing is crazy. It's you know trying to adapt one of the most complex and interesting mm-hmm. and unadaptable sci-fi classics of all time. And you're sort of watching it like, I appreciate this effort. It's so glossy. I just don't, you know, it's obviously not really breaking through. Severance feels like one of the first ones where friends of mine are just sort of like, you watch that thing? Like, you know, like it's it's sort of uh, spreading through word of mouth. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I think the quality versus quantity argument is a really interesting thing to consider because I do think like HBO used to be very, very distinctive in what it greenlit and what it put on television. And now it feels much more like there's just a bunch of stuff on HBO Max and there's all kinds of things. And you, I think it kind of is depending on the idea that people will log into HBO Max like they do with Netflix and just browse for shows. Whereas Apple seems to be picking its content, shall we say, for want of a better word, more selectively. And, you know, it, it doesn't entirely always 100% pay off, but you are also getting shows like Severance and, and shows like Ted Lasso, which uh, I think m- many people would agree worth paying money for. I have n- And the thing is, too, like, I'm not sure if it's a sustainable financial model for any company other than Apple, which has all the money in, in the entire mm. world to throw at content. Um, but because they do, we get to sit here and, and enjoy it, which is nice. Yeah. Well, David, you just wrote about, meanwhile, Netflix is starting to deflate, right? Well, I mean, it's just the the whole magic of Netflix has always been this company that spends wildly, you know, and, and, and borrows money wildly and sort of, you know, keeps expanding wildly with this promise that they've always made to their investors of like the numbers of subscribers are going to just keep going up. And since that has basically been true for 10 years, they kind of the argument has made a certain sort of sense and just one quarter of their numbers going down a little bit, but also them saying like, yeah, and we're probably going to lose a couple more million subscribers this year has sort of burst the weird reality bubble around that company. And now I feel like everyone in the industry within Netflix and outside of it is sort of having this reckoning moment where it's like, Oh, okay. So is that not the strategy anymore? Are we not all just going to try to flood the zone with television to try and keep up with everyone else you know like i think that there's just a little bit of a like okay maybe the sky it does have limits for just getting people to subscribe to netflix over and over and over and over again around the world i don't know there's all i mean it's it's a podcast unto itself what's happening with netflix yeah. right now yeah but yeah and so right maybe a more curated approach is is best but like sophie says it does help that apple is worth a quadrillion dollars or whatever right like you know so they don't money is a different concept to them even than to something like netflix which is you know netflix doesn't sell phones like they don't have other sources of revenue when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
The work is bullshit. The work is mysterious and important. And we deal with the uncertainty it brings us in the way that Kier would have wanted, together, as a family. Do we think this show, in the end, has anything new to say about the workplace? And is it really building upon past portrayals of workplaces? I feel like, yes, it is. Just because the workplace has changed so much in the last even, like, two or three years, the last five years, like, Slack, Zoom, tyranny of always online, tyranny of always being, like, a phone beep away from something horrible that you forgot to do at your job. The information that we have learned recently about the ways in which big corporations treat their employees is maybe slightly different. I am thinking about Amazon here and and other companies. I don't want to specifically pick on them because I don't want to get sued. But um, I feel like we've been hearing more stories about companies keeping tabs on their employees in slightly strange ways. Like, you know, the Fitbit participation activity boosting challenges. No, definitely. The whole thing has the vibe of like every sort of corporate horror story you've heard about just dialed up, uh, which is, you know, right. Like the idea that they know when you go to the bathroom or right, yeah. They, uh, yeah. yeah, all that stuff. Like, you I know, it's, it's, it's great. The essential nature well, of the office comedy hasn't really changed or the, the workplace drama, but at the same time, like everything is just so much higher tech now and there's so much more information and data than there ever has been before. And in that sense, I think this show is brilliant. And like I said, it's it, the idea of bifurcating your brain kind of neatly gets at the idea that you are two selves. You are your work self and then you are your free self. Right. To me, it's just like the most cynical take and the bleakest take and kind of like the end point of a long trajectory from like what, like the Mary Tyler Moore show or, um, you know, those kind of like workplace comedies of the 70s and 80s where people were actually having a nice time at the office kind of and like doing fulfilling, meaningful jobs, but also like finding romance and friendship. Well, like. That's a good... Mary Tyler Moore is a funny example because obviously what's liberating in that show is that she is a single woman who has a professional job where she's being taken mm-hmm. seriously and that like is like mildly revolutionary. Like, you know, that that, that is, you know, every, everyone in the show is basically bowled over that she's not married. I mean, the Mary Tyler Moore show is the best sitcom ever, just to be clear. But uh, like, and, and it is funny how right, like 50 years later, we've arrived at this thing, which is like work is a prison. And your your bosses are literal like tyrants and and like and corporate structures are basically just propaganda designed to brainwash you to into enjoying something you don't like. And I'm watching Severance and I'm like, this show's pretty on point. <laughs> like this show has a lot to say. And th- th- to be clear, <laughs> I enjoy my job at the Atlantic. I'm not even making fun of my own but like, you know, it's just sort of like, yeah, yeah, I feel like that is kind of the mood right now, right? <laughs> No, I mean, I I definitely as a person who also very much loves my job and finds creative fulfillment in it, there are still pieces of this that resonate, if not necessarily with me with and my experiences of work with the idea that we it has felt more and more, especially during pandemic time, that companies want to own more of you than just your nine to five. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like that's the broader experience of what work means what a career means what a job means is has been slightly tweaked in ways that we're still kind of coming to terms with and so you're seeing a lot of these pieces about like burnout and professional malaise and yeah um everyone just being exhausted all the time because it feels for a lot of people like work never ends there's no delineation now anymore between between when you're doing work and using that part of your brain and when you're not and i will now go and watch three hours of tv for work no just kidding (laughs) 
Oh, wine. Really? Wine like, is my delineation. That's why I love wine so much. Because, you know, you have a wine, you're no longer at work. Yeah. I think we're really in for like a turbulent chapter of history, which is pro I think is, is actually turning out to be the case. If we no longer believe that like work provides any sort of meaning in people's lives and is so just a reason to get a paycheck that it's worth completely forgetting about it. And, you know, well, the premise of the show is that people, yeah, like they, they feel so alienated from work that they don't even want to remember that they were there. Uh, and yeah, if, if that's if that's where we're at with our work culture, you know, no wonder, wonder we're in the great resignation. Well, I don't think that Severance is saying that. I mean, Severance is a show that is made by people as their jobs. So that's a good I think point. it's more yeah. like an attempt at a corrective at the narrative that we've had for the last few decades, which is that work is everything. It's your identity. It's your friend circle. It's your like meaning as a human being um i think we're seeing more and more now and like we at the atlantic have run some interesting like columns and and yep. uh opinion pieces about this which is actually you can very much live a meaningful life as a human being that is not defined around your job you can have friends that are you know and activities and other things that you forge your identity around that are not you know that allows your work to simply be work if that makes sense i think i don't see severance as pushing that message that we should all like quit and go and i don't know start farms um subsistence farms <laughs> upstate or whatever but but i do think it's an interesting reminder to sort of think maybe slightly more in a slightly more aware sense of um what other narratives are saying or what we ourselves yeah. have come to accept yeah, our colleague Derek Thompson had that kind of pushback to this narrative that there's a great resignation and pointing out that, you know, like for maybe three quarters of the country, people do say they're satisfied with their jobs and do find it to be a source of meaning. And, you know, maybe that means that people are just um, buying into the Lumen propaganda <laughs> that is being spread in their own workplaces. But it is like a healthy thing for society to strive towards to like make the workplace um better and not just make it something that we treat as just something to escape and that we think it's so uncool to even like your job at all. But I don't think Severance is quite saying that. But No, but I do like the way that Severance kind of tweaks at the things that we have come to accept as part of work life that is supposed to be like motivators, right? Like you guys know I hate yeah. Happy Birthday more than anything else. The song I hate so you much do? when our colleagues would leave we do you remember <laughs> when we would have those morning meetings we would all have to sing happy birthday to whoever's birthday it was and for some reason it would take like three hours to get through a single like verse of it and i would i just absolutely <laughs> loathed it but things like that you know like like the thing i suffered this memory <laughs> <laughs> but there but are it's... all these like supposedly joyful innocent things uh -huh. that companies do to keep you motivated at work and i feel like severance is not it's not denigrating them necessarily but it's saying think about what these are actually yeah. for and right. maybe just have that be in mind like that bake-off that you participated in is really just a way for us not to have to buy you snacks anyway that's my cynical take and that's why i like it because I, I don't think it's necessarily saying things overtly so much as it's putting suggestions up in the ether that you can kind of interpret in different ways depending on your own reality i think that is right i think you have earned a waffle party. Yeah. Can I have a waffle party? I don't want a waffle party. I want a melon <laughs> party and a deviled egg party with defiant jazz. And I want Tramel Tillman to dance because that man can move. Uh, I think that's a good place to wrap our conversation. So let's end on a recommendation. David and Sophie, what is another work of dystopian sci-fi that you think people should check out? 
Yeah, I think a lot about Children of Men, the film adaptation of the P.D. James book. I think so much of it reminds me of like the sense that we are coasting towards climate change apocalypse and there's nothing to be done about it. Like there's this general sense of like nihilist despair and bleakness. Obviously, the movie is about a world where reproduction has ceased to function. So I think there's like no childbirth anymore and mankind kind of breaks down as a result and can't handle the idea that this is like the last generation. It's very dark but it has seemed prescient like I said in in certain ways about the mood that we all (laughs) seem to be feeling now the other thing I would say is um there have been a lot of works of sort of reproductive dystopian Mm. I don't know if that's even a a way to describe it like there since the Trump election there have been a lot of really good smart thought-provoking books that have come out imagining different kind of reproductive dystopias kind of some influenced by the handmaid's tale um like there's one by lenny zumas called red clocks that's about an america in which abortion overnight just becomes illegal um which you know felt very uh very kind of earth-shattering when i read it back in 2017 or whenever it came out 2018 um but now it just feels like i need to go and revisit it to kind of understand the the bleak hellscape of now anyway now that i've lowered the mood what do you like david uh yeah i i was just trying to think of something from this year like or or last you know some a recent uh bit of dystopia that that was striking me i mean after yang is not quite a dystopia that's a sci-fi movie that came out this year it's more got that kind of severance feel of like it's a fairly smooth and nice looking and chill world that seems almost designed to calm everyone down but then there's all this weird stuff under the surface uh, there's sort of like allusions to a war that we fought with China. Uh, there's uh, robots who exist mostly to like, you know, service siblings and, and friends and stuff like, you know, like there's this, just this weird sense of like an empty world that I, I, I appreciate that kind of a dystopian movie on, you know, I like the, the more extreme ones as well, but like the dystopian movie where it's just like, you know, you fill in the gaps of what you like, what what you think has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because After Yang was a short story taken from a book I reviewed a mm-hmm. while ago um, by mm-hmm. Alexander Weinstein called Children of the New World, and they were all like these really sharp, really terrifying, slightly tech inspired, kind of like a more intellectual or more like emotionally resonant Black Mirror. But I, I remember being so kind of gobsmacked by that by that yeah. um, collection when it came out. So I, I haven't seen After Young yet, but I want to very much. I'm going to plug the book Severance, which has nothing to do with the TV show Severance. They're completely <laughs> different stories and properties, but um, 2018 novel by Ling Ma about a gosh darn pandemic that, mm. um, What's that? you know, sort of imperils the human race. But uh, some of the people who get the virus sort of become zombies and they just stick around at work. So similar, some sort of like overlapping themes and uh, to me, a little bit of a more fun and satisfying work so far than the TV show, which has, again, nothing to do with the book. Yeah, I've seen people say they're mad at Severance, the TV show, because it's not an adaptation of Severance, the book, which, you know, I understand, but... Yeah, I'm mad at it. Where are are the lawyers when you need them? Well, I think that does it for our show. The review is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez. 
The executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts is Claudine Abade, and our art is by Charlie Lemignon. I'm Spencer Kornhaber. Thank you, David. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, Sophie, please give me a normal thank you. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you all. <laughs>